This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I'm your host, Tara McCausland, and welcome back, Jared. So good to be back with you, Tara. Thanks for coming back on the show. I've never had a guest on a second time. And for my listeners, if you are wondering why I'm having Jared back, number one, because he's awesome. I just enjoyed our conversation so much last time. And I felt like he uh, he's such an excellent teacher. And, the, and the, the principles that we're going to be talking about today require excellent teaching to, to get across the, the power of them. So Jared's a busy guy, but he was so gracious to accept my invitation again. So thank you again. I, I was just flattered that you'd have me back. I, I always tell my Institute students that the, the second class of the semester is always the one I, I hold my breath for, because if they came back for a second time, it's like, they, okay, they knew what they had the first and they actually came back. It was like getting a second date in high school, which didn't always happen for me. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I'm grateful for a check, second chance to be able to talk about important things with, with you and your listeners. So typically what I do is before I even start the episode, I will read kind of a long formal bio. And since I've already had Jared on, I told him that I would just love for him to introduce himself and tell us what he feels like is pertinent about himself. (laughs) (laughs) My my uncle once said that it it only took the father seven words to introduce the son. So anything beyond seven (laughs) words is kind of overkill for us mere mortals. Uh, Well, I guess first and foremost, I'm I'm a, a husband and father. Uh, those are my eternal callings. Uh, beyond that, I'm a teacher of the gospel. I, I've been teaching seminary and institute for the past oh, 22 years now and absolutely loving it. Uh, being able to spend time with important topics and wonderful people. Uh, I'm, I'm in my element when I get to do that. And so and th- this just feels like an extension of the classroom. Uh, and so I've, I grew up in Southern California, went on a mission to Puerto Rico, came back and taught at the MTC. So teaching's always kind of been my, my passion and love. Uh, taught seminary and then taught at BYU and then uh, ran the institute and, and seminary program in Nashville, Tennessee for eight years. Uh, while I was there, I, I started work on a second master's and a doctorate in American religious history at, at the Vanderbilt Divinity School, which was a thrill for me uh, to study religion in an environment uh, surrounded by people who loved that topic and, and saw things from different perspectives than I did. That definitely expanded my view uh, of the goodness that lies outside. I love smelling flowers in other people's gardens. Uh, and so <laughs> visiting other churches and seeing the good that they do is, has been a blessing to me. And at the same time, it has clarified and confirmed for me just the, the unique beauties that, that grow within the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, in the last episode that I posted, we talked about that very thing that I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding that if we go out and we we look at other churches mm-hmm. and read their religious texts, that somehow that's going to detract from our, our religious experience. And it's just the opposite. I think it, it gives us an opportunity to value even more what we have because we have something to compare it to and also appreciate those brothers and sisters uh, outside of our faith. Exactly. So I love that. Holy envy is a good thing to feel. Holy envy. Yes. That comes up a lot in this podcast. And Jared failed to mention that many of you know, he has an exceptional podcast 
slash YouTube channel called Unshaken. And that was another reason why I wanted to have Jared on. I listened to him frequently. I learned so much from you, Jared, and just wanted to express my thanks um, for all, all that you do to produce that because oh, well. it's, it's been a gift in my life. Well, you're kind. I'll, I'll make sure I pass along that gratitude to, to him, capital H, who really deserves yeah. it. Yeah. Well, right on, right on. Well, so today we're going to talk about some principles that I feel like are very important, but often overlooked or misunderstood in the church. And that is priesthood authority, along with priesthood keys, but priesthood authority, temple covenants, and those being the marks or the mark of the true church and the source of our power as Latter-day Saints. I was invited to teach a temple prep class about a month ago and was just uh, reminded about the incredible importance of what we do in the temple. And really it is the icing on the cake, um, but it is a very important part of the cake. At the core is the atonement of Jesus Christ. Everything else is an appendage to it, but without the temple and without the authority, without the covenants, the earth would be wasted as we learn about in Malachi. And so I wanted to preface it with this. It's actually a quote um, that I know Jared is familiar with, but President David O. McKay once taught that if at this moment, each one of you were asked to state in one sentence the most distinguishing feature of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, what would be your answer? And I might ask the listeners, what would be your answer? Well, President David O. McKay said, my answer would be divine authority. And President uh, James E. Faust also said, without priesthood keys and authority, there would be no church. So with that said, in church history, we hear often about the prophets such as Moses and Elijah, John the Baptist coming and restoring uh, specific priesthood keys. Can you give us a brief history lesson? Why is this significant? What's the big deal about priesthood keys? <laughs> Great question. I, I think the hardest part for me, you, you asked for a brief history lesson. And as a historian, <laughs> a, a brief, I, I, I don't really go with brief very well. My, my kids would laugh and roll their eyes going, oh, no, if you ever ask that a, a history question, pre- buckle up. It's going to be a while. <laughs> so I will do my best to be to be somewhat brief. Um, maybe maybe it, it actually reminds me I was doing I was doing a, a radio interview when I was in Tennessee and they asked me about, you know, where did your church begin? And I and I laughed. And I said, well you probably expect me to say Palmyra, New York, but I would probably go with Bethlehem. Uh, and then he's mm-hmm. like, really? I'm like, actually, I'd probably go with Garden of Eden. And I, oh, actually, <laughs> I might even have to rewind the clock even before that. So we, we got a long wind up before the pitch, I suppose. But but the same is true as far as priesthood is concerned. If, if you realize that it was priesthood power by which the, that God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, and And that and speaking of priesthood keys, it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, when, when John is, is beholding this, this panoramic vision, uh, including pre-mortality, he speaks of Jesus Christ with these words. This is Revelation 3, verse 7. He said, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And I loved just introducing the Savior as a key holder, uh, as the great key holder, and that being and receiving those keys in pre-mortality, uh, in some ways the uh, whom shall I send 
and here am I, send me, was a passing of key, a, a giving of authority. When, when John sees in, in, in that vision the, the strong angel holding the book with the seven seals and asking who is able, who is worthy to open it. Well, the, the seven seals, you kind of picture these seals that are stamped on a letter and only one, the one with the proper authority is, is permitted to open it. And so again, you get a sense of, of authority to open something. And so to think of priesthood along those lines of having the authority to do something in God's name, to open a door and to grant access for others primarily, uh, that, that's really where priesthood comes in. And so in the Old Testament, you see priesthood uh, figure prominently with, with Moses and Aaron and an entire priesthood tribe uh, of, of the house of Israel, with the Levites being not given a, a land inheritance, but rather priesthood inheritance, and then spreading them all throughout the house of Israel to be a blessing to them. Uh, you see it uh, really prominently in the New Testament when, when Jesus asks Peter, uh, whom say ye that I am? And he says, thou art the Christ. And Jesus says, blessed art thou, and then promises him the keys of the kingdom. And whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And what you loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. And to, to hold that kind of authority. The very next chapter in the book of Matthew is the Mount of Transfiguration, where ancient key holders, uh, Moses, Elijah, uh, appear to Peter, James, and John and pass those keys on to them. There, there is this passing of the baton, so to speak, but in this case, priesthood authority and, and the keys to function in God's name. Uh, and so you, you see that throughout uh, biblical history. And then the restoration, where for, for priesthood to function, there needs to be this, these links in the chain. And so John the Baptist appears to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in 1829 and restores the Aaronic priesthood. Peter, James, and John shortly thereafter restore the Melchizedek priesthood. Uh, the Kirtland Temple, uh, when it's dedicated in 1836, and it's a mount of transfiguration of sorts that right there with Moses and Elias, Elias and Elijah. And it really is an incredible thing to realize that there is this chain that links us back to the ancients and through the ancients all the way back to, to God himself, the source of all that authority. Uh, I'm reminded of the story in uh, when Spencer W. Kimball was in Copenhagen and saw, was touring the, the, the old church where the Christus statue uh, stands, the original along with all of these statues of the original 12 apostles, the ones that are, have been reproduced there at the temple in Rome. And, and there's President Kimball standing next to the statue of Peter, who's representing holding keys. I mean, that's typically in early Christian art, that's how you can spot Peter. Uh, it's not by beard length or, or uh, it's, it's hard, they all wear the same kinds of uh, robes and sandals, but Peter is the holder of the keys. And when President Kimball saw that, he turned to the mission president there and said, I want you to tell every, every prelate in Denmark that I hold the keys. And for such a humble, kind-hearted man as President Kimball to be so bold in declaring that keys, that priesthood authority have been restored upon the earth and that they are found within the restored gospel and church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hmm. Well, hey, good job. I felt like that was pretty brief. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, and honestly, it, it really is amazing where we stand in all of this because 
I remember one conversation I had at Divinity School before uh, the rest, before class started, and it happened to be me, a Protestant, and a Catholic in the room, in the classroom waiting. I mean, this sounds like a, a, the beginning of a joke, right? <laughs> uh, and and there we were, and and as was often the case, we just started talking shop and comparing notes, and and one of them asked, "Where do you Mormons fit in in all this stuff? Uh, you're, not, I mean, you're not Catholic, but are you're not really Protestant?" And I just laughed and I said, "You know, if." If Protestantism and Catholicism got married and had a baby, it would be Mormonism. Uh, it, it would be the, you know, it, I still don't know a really good term to, in, to use instead of Mormonism as a historical phenomenon. But, but mm -hmm. to see the priesthood side of Catholicism, uh, that, that's something that, that, that defines Catholicism uh, and that we hold to very, very strongly. And then, and yet Protestantism separating itself from that it's fascinating to see the Reformation in terms of priesthood, that as soon as Martin Luther was cut off from the Catholic Church and he realized, I have no claim to apostolic succession. I have no claim to priesthood authority. And so what, what's my option? Well, I'm going to have to go to the Bible and center my authority in, in the word of God. And no wonder Protestantism leans away from ordinances because they know they don't have priesthood authority through this unbroken chain back to the apostles. Uh, and so they, they, they minimize the need for that and focus on grace and, and faith uh, and scripture alone. And, and we inherit both of those, uh, those legacies. And, and to see uh, the importance of priesthood authority, thank you Catholics, uh, and thank you for a restoration of that priesthood authority. And thank you to Protestants also for the importance of infusing that priesthood with faith and scripture and grace and extending it beyond solely a, a professional clergy to the point, I've heard it said that, that Mormonism has a priesthood of all believers that would make Martin Luther jealous. Mm -hmm. uh, and so to see the combination of those two worlds uh, where God really wants us to have authority and there's that order side of things, but he really wants everyone to have it and partake of it. And that's kind of the democracy side of things. So, so proving contraries between democracy and hierarchy uh, between in, in, uh, you know, authority and, and individual uh, initiative, I think is a beautiful thing in the restored gospel. Yeah. Well, and a thought came to me, um, you, and you could tell our listeners better than I could. It seems to me as I read uh, books like the saints and, and church history, that at that time, people were, were very aware of the fact that there, there was a loss of authority and that many people were searching for that lost apostolic authority that was so clear in the Bible. And it seems to me now that, I mean, I know when I served my mission, I don't think I ever had anyone say, oh, you claim to have priesthood authority and you have a living prophet. That's remarkable. I've been waiting for a church that states that they have these things. And so while in this society currently, the whole idea of authority is often not on people's minds. It was in the early days of the church. And that was often a, a major draw for people coming into the church because the, there was some recognition of that. But I like how you also put that it goes way back, just this, this passing down of the keys that are essential to governing God's kingdom on earth and accessing his power. And so I hope that and I was telling the kids that I'm teaching this temple prep class too, like we have to think bigger 
more mm-hmm. expansive and recognize what we're doing, what we're talking about in the temple. It goes way back. I mean, these are things that, that we can trace way back to the beginning. When we talk about priesthood authority and about keys and about temple covenants, we have to think big and recognize we are a part of ancient covenant Israel. That's actually a great point. I think you, you've said something even more important than, than, than I think we might realize. The because like you said, in Joseph Smith's time period, yes, a lot of people were searching for a restored truth, and they knew that things had been lost. Uh, but and, and there were some who saw the loss in terms of priesthood authority. Um, I mean, even before Joseph Smith's day, when you know, among the Puritans, when Roger Williams left Massachusetts Bay to go begin Rhode Island and and just apologized to his followers and said, "I'm sorry, I've." I've done the best that I could, but I have no authority. And I realized that. And until God sends new apostles, none of us have authority. And so there were those that saw the priesthood side of things, but that was still kind of the Catholic wheelhouse. And among mm-hmm. the, the vast majority of, of restorationists, they came from a Protestant background. And so they were more interested in a restoration of spiritual gifts mm-hmm. and powers. And yet that's tied into priesthood also. And so we think of the authority side of things. You can connect it to the, the power side of things. And to your point about the temple, which is so profound, uh, there were other groups in Joseph Smith's day that were trying to restore New, New Testament Christianity. And for Joseph, that was, you're stopping, you're pulling up too short. Uh, you're ending before you've gone back far enough. And to see what the restoration was, was trying to accomplish, it, we're not just restoring New Testament Christianity. We're st- restoring Old Testament truth as well. Uh, that, that's, an, that's another uh, hybrid that just like we're a combination of Catholicism and Protestantism, if, if uh, Judaism and Christianity were to marry and have a child, it would be us as well. Uh, and so to see the restoration, not just of the church, that's New Testament, but of the temple, that's Old Testament, and not just uh, spiritual gifts and powers, that's New Testament, but also uh, prophetic authority, and that's Old Testament. And, and so to see it all come together it really is incredible what what God has restored through all of this. Hmm. Yeah. Well, to move on from that point, um, so we know that priesthood keys provide the authority to act in God's name and to govern his church, but priesthood power is something all covenant-keeping members, men and women, can access. One of my favorite talks that President Nelson has given was back in 2019, the, the talk on spiritual treasures. And he was speaking mm-hmm. to the women of the church and the importance of understanding the importance of the, the priesthood restoration um, for them. He importuned us mm-hmm. to, to understand and study the priesthood. And, and so I just feel like if there's something that's misunderstood in the church, it is priesthood power and how both men and women can access this great power. So the question here is, what's the difference in understanding authority and priesthood power? And how can better understanding the difference help us tap into this power as Latter-day Saints? It's actually, I think we can even expand it beyond it. Yes, it's important to see the difference between authority and power. Um, and the way you asked the question, it was like, how do we get both sisters and brothers to tap into the power? And I would even expand it and say, don't limit 
female participation in priesthood to the power side of things. It's included, the sisters are included in the authority side of things right. as well. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's good. It's, I think it's wise to differentiate between authority and power. We can separate a third level, and that would be keys, as we were talking about before. And it's the keys that are given to specific sons of God. It, it's keys that, that are responsible for presiding authority. And so that's really where keys come in, to have someone that directs the work in a certain jurisdiction, a, a ward or a stake or general authorities or apostles with priesthood keys for all the world and so on. Uh, but in terms of authority, anyone who is asked to function in God's name has priesthood authority. Uh, you mentioned President Nelson's talk a few years before that. Uh, Elder Oaks gave an amazing talk about priesthood, particularly women's roles within it. And I love the way he put it as he was describing uh, women's authority. And, and he said, and that has to be priesthood because what other kind of authority is there? Uh, yeah. If it's authority, then it is by definition priesthood authority. So, I mean, I even love, love the, the word used in, in uh, Doctrine and Covenants 25, this beautiful revelation to Emma Smith. It says that she was ordained. Now that's not ordained to a priesthood office, but ordained to authority to function to expound scripture, uh, ultimately to lead the Relief Society organization. And so if there is authority, sister missionaries and what they do in having authority to go preach the gospel, uh, to, 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 up to the point where you see sisters officiating in temple ordinances, which I think is the highest manifestation on this earth of, 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 high pre, of priestly power among, I mean, priests and priestesses. And it's amazing to see that. We see evidence of it in the New Testament. We see amazing experiences of it in, in early church history. And to see women functioning with authority uh, is a powerful thing. Uh, and, and then to shift from authority to power, where, uh, how do you put it? it? I can have authority to do something and not do it very well. Uh, I can I can be authorized to function. I can have my the analogy that's often used is I can have a driver's license which gives me the, the authority to drive. But if I haven't put any gas in the tank, then I'm not going to get very far. And so, how am I living the gospel so that I have power in the priesthood rather than just hiding behind the authority of the priesthood? I, I, and again, that is not uh, limited to a single gender. And so, to see husbands and wives functioning in best case scenario, in full unity, uh, there's priesthood power in the home. And, and to be able to see that power, I mean, it's like section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants where it speaks that, that the powers of the priesthood have to be tapped into the powers of heaven. And, and I mean, that's the ultimate power source. And if it's not connected to the powers of heaven, then there is no power to it. And the only way to connect to it is through the principles of righteousness. And so as we live the gospel and try to live as Jesus lived, then we'll be able to tap into the power that Jesus had. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I fully agree. Now, I'm not a woman who has ever felt lesser than because I wasn't able to baptize my child or be ordained to a, a priesthood office because I've very honestly felt in my experience as a missionary, for instance, or my experience as a, an auxiliary president on a ward level, I've always felt that mantle come upon me. And, yeah. and I felt that strength. And even beyond that, certainly as a mom, I know that when I'm 
trying to expound scripture to my rowdy bunch (laughs) (laughs) that I get strokes of insight. And with this podcast, I know I have been blessed with the ability to understand things and articulate things beyond my natural abilities. And so I know for myself as a woman in the church that I hold authority and power, but it, it is directly tied to our our willingness to to live the laws. For me, it's 100% worth doing my best to live the laws and continuously repent <laughs> yeah, exactly. to have access to those powers. Yeah, it, it reminds me of, of when the Relief Society was organized. And originally the plan was, well, let's have a benevolent society of, of women in Nauvoo. Many uh, uh, communities in the United States had had female-led benevolent societies, they were typically called. That was actually going to be the original name of the Relief Society. And, and Emma and the other said, no, we want it to be different. We don't want it just to be one other benevolent society like everybody else has. Uh, but when, when Joseph Smith understood their hopes and realized this is even bigger than you realize, sisters. And as others said at the time, the priesthood was not fully restored. The church was not fully restored until the women were organized. And to see men and women hand in hand, that we, th- we speak of Aaronic and Melchizedek, but to, to go to patriarchal priesthood uh, and realize what God is trying to accomplish here by binding husbands and wives together, not just through priesthood authority, but to bind them with an infusion of priesthood authority that they function together in. Uh, when we see divinity as, as an eternal bond between male and female, between husband and wife, it's, it's incredible to see just how much God wants to empower his daughters uh, right alongside empowering his sons. Uh, Neither is the man without the woman nor the woman without the man in the Lord, Paul teaches. And, and we miss something whenever we, we divide, uh, or we'd miss something when we try to unite to the point, not of equality, but of, but of equivalence. Uh, I'm grateful for the differences and the need that I have for my wife and the need that she has for me and the need that we have for one another. It, but, but I think it, it is something that either gender, Satan is, does such a good job of pushing us off either extreme. He doesn't care if you fall off the straight and narrow to the left or the right. He mm-hmm. just wants to fall. And so to, to be too uh, too focused on it or not to appreciate it at all. Those are just opposite problems, but they lead to the same, the same dilemma. I, I, I've often heard my wife, especially when she was pregnant with our children, describe what it felt like to have life within her. And, and she would often tell me, I'm surprised there aren't more men who are, are jealous. Men ought to be jealous that this is something that they'll never experience. And the way she described it was so moving that I was envious, that, that I won't feel that. Now, as soon as I saw her going to labor, the, the jealousy uh, <laughs> evaporated instantly. But, uh, but the idea of feeling life within, there's power there. And, and I, I would hope that sisters w- would realize the power that is within them. And I would hope that the brethren would realize the power that's within them. And to share it with one another in in the way that the Lord would, the, the way the Lord intends. Absolutely, hundred percent. I'm a, a fortunate woman. I have an excellent husband who honors his priesthood and he is, raised him well. <laughs> well, he was great before I married him, but um, 
I feel like one of the great gifts of, of being married to someone who honors their priesthood, but is a, is faithful to covenants is that we are equally yoked together and that we raise our children in righteousness together. And it, I think he would hopefully, <laughs> if you were to jump on, he would, he would say, we are a great team. He's given me wings to fly. And he would hopefully say the same of me that we've only continued to elevate one another. And so, um, and there's some truth to the fact that because of cultural issues, sometimes women have been sidelined and that is, that is the honest truth, but we are all equal in the sight of God. And he has provided an opportunity for women and men to access his power. It's, I've often said to, to people that the history of Christianity is the long and sometimes painful story of trying to catch back up to Jesus mm-hmm. and to see where Jesus was so far ahead of his time in terms of racial issues and gender issues particularly. And I would say similarly that LDS history, the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been the long and so often painful experience of trying to catch back up to Joseph Smith. And I really do believe, especially in race and gender kinds of things, Joseph was ahead of his time. Yes. And that we are still trying to catch back up to him. Uh, and, and I don't know what the future will hold. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to watch it unfold. And, and President Nelson has only made that much more exciting. Uh, but to see husbands and wives together to see the the creation in fact i'll put it this way i was struck once studying section 84 of the doctrine and covenants because the phrase the restoration of appears and that doesn't appear very often in scripture uh, surprisingly so and i often said this to my my students i'll put on the board the restoration of blank blank and ask them to fill in the blanks and they'll usually say oh the priesthood or the church or the gospel and I said, yes, those are all good ways to complete the sentence. But the, the only scriptural way to complete the sentence is that phrase from section 84, where God speaks of the restoration of my people. And I love that that's the ends and all those other restorations are the means. And the Lord restores the church and the gospel. And in, in our conversation for tonight, uh, his priesthood, but what for what cause, for what end? to restore his people. I want to restore my people to a right relationship with each other and with me. And the gospel will help with that. The church will help with that. The priesthood will help with that. And through the covenants that we make with God and and through the sealing ordinance with each other, oh, it is an amazing restoration of humanity to right relationships. I love that. Well, so we've, we've been talking about priesthood keys and authority and power. Um, but we know that all of that goes hand in hand with temple covenants, where, as President Nelson said, as we go to the temple, as we, as we make and keep covenants, that is where we receive the authority and ability to access God's power. So without the authority, temples and the ordinances and covenants made therein would have no effect on earth or heaven. And temples and the work we do there really is at the center of everything we are trying to accomplish as Latter-day Saints, which is to help God in his overarching purpose, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So um, with that kind of as a background, there are a few verses in Doctrine and Covenants 84 that you keep alluding to, where the Lord talks about how in, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. 
and in verse 21, without the ordinances thereof and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. Can you make sense of those verses for us? In what way uh, do the ordinances manifest godliness in our lives? That's a beautiful question. On the one hand, there's a certain level of godliness that is required of us even to accept them and to be changed by them, to participate in them, I guess we could say. Uh, a level of worthiness and godliness that's required as we officiate in them uh, on behalf of other people. But also, just in terms, I mean, I mean, if we stick with that text itself, section 84 is a deep revelation. And you know, shortly after the verses that you quoted, he speaks of Moses trying diligently to sanctify his people so that they could behold the face of God. It says, and this Moses plainly taught to his people. And this, the antecedent of that, is all of those verses that you just referred to about the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood, this greater priesthood. Now, if we want to dig into that history, and again, I'll, I'll do my best to be brief on this one too. Uh, but when Moses comes down, I mean, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and it has his experience with God and receives these tablets to bring back down to the people. Now, we picture those as the Ten Commandments, but there was so much more on the, on the tablets than the Ten Commandments, at least the first set. He goes up I mean, it's just interesting to see that as the people are down below in the valley and they're like, oh, no, you, it's okay. You go up by yourself. Um, I'm not really big on thunders and thunder and lightnings and rumblings and everything. I'm not sure if I'm ready for this. Uh, they were daunted by just how much God was, was desirous of giving them. And so Moses goes alone and that was never his intent. Uh, mountaintops can be lonely places and God wants all of us to ascend the mountain of the Lord to be with him to connect heaven and earth. And there's the temple. There's the ultimate mountain of the Lord. Well, when Moses comes down and sees them worshiping a golden calf, uh, proving that they're still on a telestial level and not ready for a celestial level, God then says, well, can we, oh, can we, can we meet in middle ground perhaps and, and aim for something terrestrial at least to begin with? And so Moses breaks those tablets, goes back up to, to get a, another. It wasn't just, can you print me out a second copy? Sorry, I, I broke the first. According to the Joseph translation of Exodus 34, on the first set of tablets was the higher priesthood. On the second set was the lower. So they, they received Aaronic priesthood instead of Melchizedek. They received tabernacle instead of temple. They received angels instead of God. And there's something to that when you think of Melchizedek versus Aaronic. The Aaronic priesthood holds the keys of the ministering of angels. That's one of the more famous elements of the Aaronic priesthood. Whereas, uh, again, from that Moses experience, God says, I'm not going to go up with you anymore. Uh, I'll send an angel instead. And so to see them come down that, that massive notch from God to angels, that's Melchizedek to Aaronic. And when you look at the two priesthoods in that light, that the Aaronic priesthood is meant to prepare us for the ministering of angels, whereas the Melchizedek priesthood is meant to prepare us for the presence of God. Uh, I've often said, uh, tried to, to separate them out for my students, that the Aaronic priesthood is all about the elimination of sin, and the Melchizedek priesthood is all about the introduction to God. Uh, so the Aaronic pulls you out of the, of the pit, and the Melchizedek brings you up to the mountaintop. Or the Aaronic is in charge of justification, and the Melchizedek is in charge of sanctification. And, and one of the most important parts of all of this 
it struck me. It was one of those open your mouth and it should be filled moments that we often have as teachers. Uh, I was teaching seminary ages ago and we were talking about priesthood and there I was surrounded by a bunch of teenagers. And I asked a question that I, I probably intended for the boys uh, in my you know, youthful misunderstanding. I asked them in what way is the Aaronic priesthood the preparatory priesthood? And I expected them to give the same answer I always did as a youth. And that, and sure enough, one young man raised his hand and said, oh yeah, the Aaronic priesthood is preparatory because it prepares us to receive the Melchizedek priesthood. And I was planning to say yes, exactly, because that was the precise answer I had expected and hoped for. But instead I found myself going off script and looking at the student and saying, oh, so priesthood's all about you, huh? And so, oh yes, you need to hold the, the Aaronic priesthood so you can be prepared to someday receive the Melchizedek priesthood since that's all about you too. And he was kind of sitting there kind of uh, gun shy after that, like, what, did, I, did I say something wrong? And then I was surprised, like, what am I doing? He gave me the answer I expected. And I think the Lord wanted to teach us all something there that yes, the Aaronic priesthood prepares its holders to someday receive the Melchizedek priesthood. But the priesthood is never about the holder. It's always about the recipient of its blessings and its ordinances. I've never yet laid my hands upon my own head. It's always about someone else. And, and it struck me also there in section 84, when it describes the Aaronic priesthood, it's the only place in scripture where it's the, the word preparatory is used but it doesn't call it the preparatory priesthood. It says it administers the preparatory gospel. And what I love about that is, oh, it is all about the recipient, female and male. Uh, as we receive the ordinances of the Aaronic priesthood, that is the preparatory gospel. It cleanses me from sin. It eliminates the, the, the weak spots in my life. That's why when I repent, I go to the bishop because he's the head of the Aaronic priesthood in the ward. And as, as I partake of the sacrament, which is an Aaronic ordinance, that purifies me again, just like baptism did, which was an Aaronic ordinance. And all of those ordinances are meant to purify me, to cleanse me, to get rid of the sin in me, so that I'm now prepared for Melchizedek ordinances to introduce me to God, to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's a Melchizedek ordinance. I now am in the presence of a member of the Godhead. Uh, in, the, in the sacrament prayers, that we might always have his spirit to be with us. Again, that's introduction to a member of the Godhead. That's an, a Melchizedek ordinance. And the temple, the ultimate site of Melchizedek ordinances, they culminate in what? In being introduced into the presence of God as we pass through the veil and enter into the celestial room. It, it's To me, it's so profound to realize that if at the end of the sacrament ordinance at church on Sunday, if we, if the Aaronic priesthood has done its job of performing a preparatory ordinance, and if we've done our job in coming prepared to be prepared by it, then there's no more sin in the congregation. That's incredible. And once that's done and we are sinless, now we are ready to be taught, to be sanctified, to be blessed, to have the Holy Ghost teach us through through the talks that we hear and the, and the worship that we offer. It, it's, it's trying to make us more godly. And that's what Melchizedek ordinances are for. When I used to give temple recommend interviews as a member of the bishopric, I would often tell the, the members as I was signing their recommend, do you realize why we have to do this twice? It's not quality control. 
the, the stake presidency isn't checking up on the bishopric to make sure we did it right or that somebody didn't, oh yeah, well, they might be able to fake their way through a bishopric interview, but not the stake presidency. <laughs> no, it is not quality control. What it is, is the bishopric represents the Aaronic priesthood in the ward and the stake presidency represents the Melchizedek priesthood in the stake. And so to enter God's house, having gone through these preparatory ordinances along the way, you, you get signed off on by the Aaronic priesthood and by the Melchizedek priesthood so that you can then be shepherd into the house of God. I love that. It seems to me like I've heard you explain that on Unshaken. And I, I had never been able to really differentiate the, the purposes between the two priesthoods right. um, and how they prepare us for, as you said, the justification and the sanctification and, and entering God's presence. I just love to think of the gospel as God's great school, mm-hmm. as his way to, yes, literally prepare us to meet him again someday with access to his power our ability to do and to become and to serve, to build his kingdom is all magnified 10, 20, 100 fold. And I love the temple for that reason, because I feel like when I leave the doors of the temple, that I am empowered to do what God has asked me to do. Exactly. And, And I think that's one of the most heartbreaking things for me is I recognize that there are a number of Latter-day Saints who either are unwilling or unable for whatever reason to go to the temple, they are missing out on that great power. And God wants to bestow that upon all of his children. Profound about that too is, I mean, in ancient Israel, the temple was the ultimate, I mean, Jews believe that the temple, the, the holy of holies in the temple was the only inherently sacred space on earth. They believed it was was directly beneath the throne of God in the heavens. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the navel of the universe, they sometimes called it, you know, the belly button of the world. That's where it all begins. Uh, and this umbilical cord of sorts that connects us heavenward. But to see kind of these concentric circles of holiness and that Gentiles could come this far and no further. And then women could come this far, but no further. And then Israelite men could come this far, but no further. And then uh, Levites could come in uh, to the, the temple itself, but only into the holy place. And into the holy of holies, the actual presence of God, only the high priest could go. And only on one day a year, on the day of atonement. Uh, and when Jesus was crucified and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, there was God, not my, my well-meaning, wonderful evangelical friends. See, see, God was saying, we don't need the temple anymore. And it's like, no, 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 no hardly. God was saying the temple is, is, now, is the ultimate goal for each of you, but now you can all come in. It's not that you no longer need it. It's, I didn't destroy the temple. I opened the veil. I want you in here with me. You don't have to be the high priest anymore because Christ is the high priest to good things to come. You don't have to wait for the day of atonement because through Jesus, every day is atoned for. And so you can come. So when Paul says to the Hebrews, come boldly to the throne of grace, that's his invitation to come into the temple, that we can come in because of what Jesus did. And we can be, we can be ready to, to enjoy his presence there. I, you mentioned teaching mission uh, or temple prep and I think so often we talk about temple worthiness, and while that's important, 
I think perhaps even more important is temple readiness. And we don't often talk about that enough. And are, are you ready for the experience that God has in store for you where I hath not seen and ear hath not heard and neither hath entered into the heart of man that which God hath prepared for them that love him. And, and the temple is the place where he can truly pour out blessings, uh, open the windows of heaven and go beyond the Malachi measure. It, it, it's really a, the, the ultimate place. It, and, and hopefully with COVID behind us, uh, for the most part, uh, we've been getting antsier and antsier uh, to re-enter the, the house of God. Yeah, absolutely. I think COVID and my teaching this temple prep class, because I haven't been back to the temple mm -hmm. since it shut down, I'm, I'm very anxious to go back. I'm curious, just from your perspective, because it, it takes uh, effort, it requires sacrifice mm -hmm. to be not just worthy, but ready to enter the temple. All are invited, but there, there is a level of preparation that needs to take place. And so some people who are members of the church or, or not Latter-day Saints may feel like the covenants that we make there are far too restrictive or that the temple is way too exclusive. Um, why is being worthy and able to make and keep temple covenants worth our greatest effort? Oh, it's in some ways it's, it's what prepares us to receive all that Heavenly Father wants to give us. It's, it's going to require broad shoulders and very strong muscles to be able to bear up under the blessings. He calls it an eternal weight of glory. That's heavy lifting. And so to be able to bear that blessing, uh, I, I just, I, I'm not trying to earn my way into God's presence, I, but I am trying to broaden my shoulders so that I can handle the blessings that God is trying to give me. I remember when I was in Tennessee going around to other congregations to try to explain the, the church uh, to curious uh, non-members. This was during the Mitt Romney campaign. Everybody wanted to know about Mormonism. And uh, I said, okay, we're gonna do mostly Q&A. What do you wanna know? And in one congregation, this sweet little old lady took me up on my offer to ask anything. And she got mad and said, why can't I come into your, into your temple? Uh, why did I have to miss my own granddaughter's wedding? And it was like, oh, this, this one's personal. Okay. And I remember just as a missionary, I often explain the apostasy by saying, well, it's not that other churches are false. They're simply incomplete. And so I started going down that path and letting her know that her church was wonderful. Uh, it was just incomplete. And I expected her to just smile and go, oh, thank you. That was so kind. And she, by the look on her face, I realized that the word incomplete wasn't any more palatable than false. Uh, and so then I found myself scrambling like, uh oh, what do, what do I say? What do I do? And uh, we, we talked about a lot of different things. But at one point I said to her, do you believe that Joseph Smith saw the father and the son? I explained a little bit about the first vision when I started to kind of give the background of the church. And she very humbly and kindly, but very honestly said, no, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be offensive, but I don't believe that happened. And I said, that's okay. I don't blame you. In fact, Joseph Smith himself said, I don't blame anyone who doesn't believe me. Uh, I had to have a hard time believing it myself if it hadn't happened to me. Uh, I said, okay, how about this one? Do you believe that Joseph Smith 
uh, received, speaking of priesthood keys, that he received the key, the sealing power to bind on earth and have it bound in heaven. Do you believe that Elijah appeared to Joseph Smith in 1836 to grant him that authority? And she was like, well, you know, eyes wide, like, whoa, you guys believe even more, I mean, that goes beyond anything else that I, I already knew about you guys. And no, I'm sorry, but I don't believe that. I said, again, I don't, no offense taken. I, I can't blame you for that. But I do believe that. And then I said, now, do you believe that when a man and a woman enter an LDS temple, that they're not just married till death do they part, but because of that authority that's been restored through Elijah, that the sealer in the, te in the temple has priesthood authority to bind, to say to death itself, you cannot break up this couple. Do you believe that he has that authority? And again, she said, no, I'm sorry, I don't. And I said, okay, I don't blame you, but I do. And here's the real difference. If you don't believe in any of those things, then, you're, then you don't really believe anything that happened in the temple. And again, that's okay. But uh, number one, that should reassure you, you haven't missed anything as far as you're concerned. And you can go to the wedding reception and celebrate with your granddaughter and, and, and everyone else. But I will say this, when I go to the temple, it's not as a spectator. It's to add my faith to the stockpile because I believe in those things. Too often, and I said this to her, we talk about people, well, you have to be worthy to enter the temple. And I realized that in the speak, thinking of this sweet little grandma, I'm sure she's probably worthy to go to the temple. Uh, but she wasn't ready. It, and I realized it's less a matter of worthiness and more a matter of faith. And do you believe in these things? Can you add your faith to the stockpile? And as I was describing this to her, the thought came of Jesus raising the daughter of Jairus, that the room, the, uh, his home is filled with people that are mourning the loss of his daughter. They loved her. There was, they were worthy to be there. They were loving. They wanted to be there to support the family and mourn the loss of their little girl. But when Jesus tried to calm them down and say, no, don't worry. She's only asleep and I'm going to go wake her up. And they, it says that the scripture said that they laughed him to scorn. They just made fun of it. That, that's impossible. Are you crazy? And so Jesus didn't chide them, but neither did he invite them into the, that inner room where a miracle was about to take place because they didn't have the faith that a miracle would. He only brought Peter, James, and John, the same that had been on, that were on the Mount of Transfiguration. He only brought them and mom and dad. In other words, only faith can be present because I'm about to do the impossible and doubt would get in the way of that. And so as I talked with this sweet grandma, just to say, it's not that you're not worthy to see your granddaughter's ceiling. It's not that you don't love her and want to celebrate with her, but to enter and, and will this miracle into existence, to, to believe, to exercise my faith. Joseph Smith's called faith mental exertion. And when I go to a temple ceiling, it's not to watch, it's to exert myself mentally. It's to exercise faith. I feel that every time I lay my hands on someone's head to give a priesthood blessing, and especially the times where I'm not the voice. It's not that I'm off the hook for that particular blessing. It's that I'm not voicing it, but I have to add my faith to the stockpile. And in the temple where, where we're able to do that, yes, it requires preparation on our part. Yes, it requires worthiness and readiness on our part. It's, it's belief. It's faith. 
it's willing the impossible into not only possibility, but into reality. And it's amazing to be able to be a part of that. I really appreciate how you frame that. I, I'm now completely rethinking <laughs> how I'm going to teach my next lesson <laughs> in temple prep. It's more about being ready and, and more so about the faith to bring these things into fruition um, that God is wanting to bring into our lives. Yeah. And so that it's not a restrictive commandment. It, it, it's not, he's not trying to keep anyone out. I mean, the doors are typically automatic. They just open for you when you walk to the temple. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, he really does want all, I mean, what's Isaiah's prophecy? All nations shall flow unto it. And he calls it the mountain of the Lord. It's the only time where things flow uphill because there's such a draw there. And the Lord is, is beckoning us into his home. He's gathering us and we flow uphill to get there. We're drawn to it. And it's incredible to watch. There, there's a, a, a beautiful verse in, in Ezekiel where he sees in vision the temple. Uh, is it, well, maybe if this is, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong verse. Um, anyway, there's a verse somewhere in the Old Testament. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be able to tell you otherwise, so you're good. <laughs> There's a verse that says, if you enter the temple from the north, you have to leave to the south. And if you enter the temple from the south, you have to leave to the north. You come in from the east, go through the west. If you come from the west, go to the east. And at first I thought, is this just like crowd control? You know, uh, he, he doesn't want traffic jams in the temple. But then I thought, no, on a symbolic level, he doesn't want you to leave the same way you came. And that to me is real temple worship. That yes, I may come out to the same, my same throughout through the same doors, but I come out different, and and God has prepared me for higher and holier things. It's like every time I go, a layer of the natural man is peeled off, and a layer of the spiritual person is is put in its place. And I just feel that protection, that 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 sanctification, that holiness. There's just something noble about becoming a savior on Mount Zion because it makes us a little bit more like the savior that's, that it's inviting us in. I love it. Thank you so much for all of that. And we've had a fly buzzing around here. I don't know if you could hear that or see me like trying to like, <laughs> apparently he wanted to be privy to this awesome conversation. All creatures but... of our God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Well, thank you so much, Jared, for imparting some of your vast wisdom this evening. And I know you've already answered this question, but why, with your vast background and, and all the study that you've done in religion, and um, I know that you have a great deal of holy envy for the myriad faith traditions out there, but why do you continue to stick with this faith tradition why are you still rowing and choosing faith in the restored church of Jesus Christ? That's a beautiful question. And I don't remember what I said last time. So, so this it, is nice to be able to approach the question fresh. I actually just had an amazing conversation uh, just last week, in, in fact, a, a born again Christian who's now studying, uh, getting her PhD in Hebrew Bible at a Jewish seminary and uh, had heard a podcast that I had done and, and reached out just saying, I, I want to know more about why you, the way you talk about your faith, uh, it's intriguing to me because I love my faith too. And, and 
you're describing things that that there's a fullness and I'm just curious what I'm missing. And she didn't say that uh, defensively or combatively, just an honest, sincere curiosity. And we talked for like two hours and uh, are looking forward to continued conversations in the future. And in some ways, I mean, to use your metaphor, why keep rowing? Because I never run out of water. And this is one of the few places that you can row forever. And and, and because Jesus is in the boat with you, why would you want to get to the other side? Uh, he's, it, it, there's something profound about eternal progression. There's something profound about all that God wants to give us and to prepare us for. There, it's such a generous gospel that the Lord has and that he's trying to prepare us to receive, broaden those shoulders and strengthen those muscles. Uh, as we've talked tonight about priesthood and about the temple, where those two great gifts come together, I, I want to keep rowing there. What God is preparing me to receive, that there's a beautiful verse uh, when Abigail is speaking to David and just says to him that you are bound in the bundle of life with God. And he's, in, he's on board. He's in the boat. We're, we're, we're shipmates. And to be able to keep rowing with him and to be bound in the bundle of life is just an exhilarating thing. I'm grateful for his generosity. I'm grateful for his grace and his patience with me and, and just preparing me to receive what he has in store, whatever it might be. And, and I've, I'm humbled by it. I'm honored to be a part of it. And, and, and there's incredible things in the distance both with priesthood and with temple as we continue to grow up in God. So thanks for the chance to, to row a little bit with you tonight. Well, thank you again so much, Jared. And I just have to tell our listeners, Jared is as nice and as uh, personable as he appears to be on his podcast. I've just been so impressed with your, your generosity in giving of your time and your talents. So thanks again for being here with me tonight. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Tara. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschrist sr podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about Still Rowing. Thanks again for listening.